All right. We are in the midst of a summer sermon series on 1 Peter. And, and the book of 1 Peter is such an interesting book. At least I think it is. And the, the title of our sermon series, actually the title of this message today, is Living the Good Life. And the good life is how followers of Jesus live in a world that often feels like it's headed the opposite direction from God. And if you follow Jesus long enough, you start to wonder, like I often do, is one of these things not like the other? Like when you look around at friends and neighbors and the rest of our co-workers and whoever it is, sometimes I just feel like I don't fit in. And you know, human nature is such that we are often trying to fit in. Uh, even when we don't know it, we try to conform and keep up. And in an unchurched region like the Pacific Northwest, following Jesus means you're probably very, very aware of how your faith doesn't quite fit in. And I just want to tell you this morning that that's okay. Because in Jesus, we've found a key that unlocks the good life. We've discovered in him what everyone else, I believe, is looking for. And, you know, last week, Lynn Lindbergh uh, preached for us, and actually, that was kind of a it's, a, it's a tough act to follow. You know, that was supposed to be family Sunday on July 4th, and so we're all kind of one big happy family in here, and, and it was a cornucopia of different worship experiences, wasn't it? I mean, that was, that was awesome. And she even wrote a little song, which I, I can't help to, I, I, I'm sorry, I can't help you, Lynn, to sing, but it was to help us mnemonically remember the Bible verse. I'm just going to read it for you instead. So 2 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's talking to Christians, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And so at Cascade, we preach out of 1 Peter every couple years. In fact, uh, a few years ago, we even did a Bible study uh, uh, from it. And it's because I'm convinced that the message of 1 Peter is so applicable to people like us who live in a time and a place. Uh, I mean, the Pacific Northwest has one of the lowest concentrations of Christians anywhere in the country. And so you start to feel a little weird. I mean... We give up part of our Sunday, we give up part of our income, we give up part of our week often to support and participate in being part of God's people. And that's just weird to many of the people. Sometimes I think it's weird. God, why am I doing this? But you know, we've got it good when compared to other followers of Christ around the world. First Peter is one of the top, you know, if not the most favorite book of the Bible, uh, when you get outside of the United States, and especially a lot of the developed world, it's the number one book. It won't even crack the top 10 in the United States. But in places like China or Indonesia or the Middle East or wherever Christians feel particularly small and isolated, First Peter is like number one. Why? Because it gives them hope. Because it helps them know how to live when most of the world around them is headed in the total opposite direction of God. And so um, we want to talk this morning about living the good life, as First Peter instructs us to do. 
And what is it? You know, all of us hold dreams and visions of what we hope our lives will become. We often chase after them, strive for them, what we think will be the good life. And you know, we want that good life now, don't we? But we also want the good life later. And uh, you know, as I pay attention to marketing campaigns and all of the stuff that people are trying to sell me or to buy into, I've kind of decided that there's like two different approaches, right? The first one is offering the good life now. Like here's what you need to purchase with all of your hard-earned cash right now to experience the good life. Amen, right? And then the other approach, I know I'm grossly simplifying this to any of you who are professionally marketing anything, but then the other one is like the future value, like, oh, this is how you continue getting the good life later down the road. So investment companies are always trying to paint the perfect idealized picture of retirement, aren't they? And maybe I'm paying attention more to that now the closer that I get towards uh, to, to retirement because I'm supposed to be like saving and planning for that, right? Along with saving for college, and you know, praise the Lord that we actually got into the housing market when we could and all these other things that we're supposed to be doing. I mean, everybody else is doing this, right? You should just do it too. And a few years ago, like, I mean, actually more than a few years ago, a long time ago, when Peyton Manning, for those of you who know that is, it'd be like Tom Brady who just retired, okay? But when Peyton Manning retired, he did these series of commercials that I loved the following NFL season. And they were called Peyton on Sunday. And so instead of suiting up to play football, Peyton Manning would be just in random places like, oh, not the football game, like here's what Peyton's doing. And there was one that was awesome. I mean, there was more than one, but the one that I remember, it was Peyton on Sunday morning in a park. And he was seated on a park bench next to like the elder state statesman of the park. And they're just kind of staring, you know, feeding the pigeons and staring off into space. And uh, the guy turns to Peyton and he says, you know, retirement isn't all it's cracked up to be. So work as long as you can, son. And I just, lo I just love that. I just love that because I have this vision, this hope that, oh man, everything that I haven't been able to accomplish or do, you know, at this time in my life now, there's going to be this season where it all just comes true. All my wildest dreams and then there's this, you know, little tap on my shoulder, like, it may not work out that way, right? And while I'm a big fan of saving and living within my means, it always strikes me, why do we trudge through life waiting for this vision that may never materialize? Why wait when you and I could experience the good life now? And you know, as Christians... The good life, the secret to it, we've already discovered, is found in a relationship with God. In chapter 2, the letter that, first Peter, or that Peter writes to Christians living in the first century, he instructs them, live such good lives. The life that we find in relationship with Jesus and the relationship that profoundly affects and orders the rest of our daily lives, the relationship that affects our, you know, connection with God, with family, with friends, with 
fellow believers with the world that we live in, the relationship that impacts our lifestyle and ethical choices, this relationship with Christ affects um, our, our hope and, how, I mean, our perspective, how we see the world. That relationship is the good life. And the good life that God always intended us to live is one filled with love and joy and peace and contentment and hope and purpose and adventure. The good life is a life filled with meaningful relationships with people that we, we love, with family, friends, with our community, even people we don't know. The life that God always intended us to live is a life that starts now. And it doesn't just end when we stop breathing. It continues on in the presence of God forever. And this life, and talking about this life, is as relevant now as it was to Christians living 2,000 years ago in the first century. So the people Peter were write, was writing, uh, he begins his letter off by saying they're scattered throughout the Roman provinces. And so where he was writing to, the, pe- the group of people that he was writing to, they were located in what we know now as modern-day Turkey. 2,000 years ago, I mean, it's kind of fresh on our minds. Just, just a few months ago, there was a massive earthquake in that region that killed and destroyed, killed so many people, destroyed so much. But that, that region was kind of the starting point for Christianity. And 2,000 years ago, this would have been an extremely cosmopolitan, it would have been, uh, uh, you know, financially and economically, uh, like, boom towns. It would have been very diverse with people from all over the Mediterranean region, like, kind of being drawn to, to this area where Peter was writing. And these diverse Christians were scattered and sprinkled throughout the Roman world, <clears throat> there in Turkey and, and all around kind of the Mediterranean. And even though they were uh, very, like I said, had very diverse backgrounds, they had a couple things in common. First was their faith in Christ. Their faith in Christ, God in the flesh, who came to redeem and restore the world. The other thing that they had in common is that they were a part of an extremely tiny minority. They were among the first of their neighbors, uh, among... among uh, The rest of the people around them, their family, their friends, this group of people often felt maligned, misunderstood, unpopular with the establishment, and at times persecuted. Because of two main things. First of all, they were seen as unpatriotic. Christians, those unpatriotic Christians. Could you imagine in today's climate, for someone to say that? No, the Christians are the God-fearing Americans, right? At least that's how the marketing machine seems to be portraying us. But not so in the early, early, the early church, the first century. Unpatriotic because Jesus is Lord. Who's Lord in the first century? Caesar, get on board, man. Support the state. Jesus is not Lord, Caesar is. And yet, these Christians keep saying, even though we tell them not to, that Jesus is Lord. 
extremely unpopular and unpatriotic. Second thing, Christians were seen as social misfits. What's wrong with these people? Christians stopped worshiping their own little household gods. Every family had them. They're little idols. They were representations of, you know, family ancestors and family members that connected them to their past and who they were. They were connected to the larger kind of pagan, uh, you know, worship gods around them in that system. And these Christians stopped worshiping the household gods. Not just that, they stopped attending the communal feasts held in honor of the gods. You know, that's just inviting really, really bad luck. Not just for them, but for the rest of us. They're socially misfits. They didn't fit in. People were frustrated with these Christians. And so these followers of Christ wanted to know, how can a Christian live in this heavily non-Christian world? Or how can we learn to cope with the societal pressures that just seem to be mounting against us? Does it sound familiar? I mean, we might be 2,000 years removed, but some things never change, do they? I mean, how does a follower of Christ live in a world that seems to be just moving further and further away from God rather than closer to him? Well, we can learn a lot from people like Peter. Listen to what he has to say. This is 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. These are pivotal, pivotal verses in the whole entire letter. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let me read it again. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So earlier in this letter, Peter asserts that their citizenship has changed. The song that we sang last week with Lynn, they're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And so when Peter says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, do you think his readers are literally foreigners living away from their country of birth? I mean, there's actually no way for us to know, but probably not. Many of them probably grew up in the area. Culturally, at least, they would have felt very much at home, not like foreigners and exiles, and yet that's what he calls them. Because faith in Jesus changes your citizenship, changes my citizenship. And the first thing that we learn here from Peter is that the good life, the one that he writes of, the good life that we find in a relationship with Christ, it puts you at odds with the world. The good life puts you at odds with our world. In fact, following Jesus and trying to live life as he instructs us may ruin our reputation. And that's okay. 
You know, those of you that have called the Pacific Northwest your home for maybe your whole life, uh, this probably isn't news to you. You know, in some circles, saying that you're a Christian, talking about Christ is like saying a four-letter word, isn't it? And the word isn't love. Uh, places are different. You know, we, we spent about 10 years here in North Bend. We, uh, Corey and I and our family, we spent about 10 years in Bellingham. And, and they are different. Like, if I told someone in Bellingham, you know, if you're at the, you know, the kid's birthday party or the, um, you know, you're at somebody's house for dinner or whether you're the graduation reception, weddings, whatever, and you're mingling and people, you know, what do you do? And you say, I would have to say, you know, well, I'm a pastor. I work at a church, you know, or it comes up that you're a Christian. In Bellingham, that always landed a little differently. It, it wasn't good. It's like the conversation would quickly change and people would move out. That happened a lot. Very rarely would people go, oh, me too, you know. And, and it's different here. I haven't had that kind of like, oh, people are totally turned off in the Snoqualmie Valley when I say that I'm a pastor or I'm a Christian. But I mean, it's still sometimes you're just like, oh, that's nice. Big gulps, you know, we have nothing in common in that conversation. If you've been here for any time at all, you know what that feels like. It's the Pacific Northwest. That doesn't happen in different parts of our country and in different parts of our world. But you know in trying to follow Jesus, there will be people who misunderstand you. There will be people who mistrust you because you say you're a Christian. There will be people who laugh at you and even mock you, maybe not to your face, but definitely behind your back. Should it surprise us? No. Jesus himself said to expect trouble. John 16, 33, speaking to his disciples, he says, In this world you will have troubles, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Even when people look down on us, single us out because of our faith, when we encounter tough times, Jesus promises that he will not abandon us because he has overcome this world. If the world hates you, Jesus says in John 15, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of it. That is why the world hates you. So living the good life of Jesus puts us at odds with the world. And when you try and follow him, it's like a little salmon trying to swim upstream. I've used this illustration before, probably for other things, but man, does it fit here. I love fishing for salmon. I don't do it often enough. The fact that you can pull a fish out of the river that's like your dinner is just mesmerizing to me, right? But they swim upstream. Why? It would be so much easier to just go with the flow. Wouldn't the currents all headed the other direction, little salmon? Just go, go with the flow, but that's not how it works, there's something inside that little salmon that makes it want to go home. And so they swim upstream. I know that some of you might be thinking, you know, Dan, this is a terrible metaphor for the Christian life because you know that salmon, right? That's a one-way trip, isn't it? Little salmon is gonna die if it decides to go home. Terrible metaphor. I've got news for you. The salmon is gonna die anyway. So it may as well live the way God designed it to live. 
Salmon's going to die anyway. You may as well live and swim in the direction that God is calling us. It may not be easy, but it's the way God's made us and the way that God has made us. So following Jesus, you're choosing to follow God's way. You're discovering the little homing beacon in our soul that all of us have, has, and it craves the Almighty. It craves to know our creator, our designers, the sustainer of our life. It craves to follow the example that he set for us in Jesus. It may not be easy, but it's living the best life. And the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7 speaks of the narrow gate. In it, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Being a Christian means that we are living an alternative lifestyle because we're choosing to live differently. It's going to put us at odds with the rest of the world. It would be much easier to just go with the flow, but wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to death. But Jesus' way, Jesus' way leads to life. So the first thing we learned this morning is that the good life found in Jesus puts us at odds with the world. The second is that the good life is a mindset. It's a mindset. We have to know who we are. We have to know our place. So if you want to know who you are, you have to get to know whose you are. You and I belong to God. He made us, claimed us, died for us. We're God's children made in his image. We're a reflection of him. And you know, reflections are funny because they're often imperfect. They're backwards even. And when we look in the mirror at ourselves, we often see the person who other people think we are or hear what they say about us or expect from us. It's hard to see our true identity when we're just kind of looking or trying to come up with it on our own. But if we look to God instead, whose reflection we are as imperfect or sometimes backwards as we might feel or be, that's how we know our identity. The Bible here in 1 Peter uses some very strong language to describe our identity, our relationship to God when we follow Jesus. In fact, Peter tells us that we are God's slave. In chapter 2, verse 16, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slave. Wow. I mean, slavery, no matter what century you're living in, is an ugly word. Slavery in the first century looked very different, Roman slavery, than the kind of slavery that existed here in the United States. But it's still ugly. So what is Peter, this is a loaded term, what's he saying? Well, Peter's really asking a question. He's saying, who is your master? To whom do you belong? Do you belong to God or someone else? Have you given your allegiance to someone or something? 
You know, every time we disobey God or choose to live our life differently than how the Bible instructs us, then the Bible has a word for that. It's called sin. And it paints this picture of our human condition as one of slavery to sin, that sin is actually our master. And, you know, I, I mean, that sounds extreme, right? You think of things like, well, of course, yeah, like addiction, right? People just can't help themselves. They seem enslaved to this. They do it over and over again. But, you know, sin, for most of us, is very subtle. You take a thing like gossip, right? I mean, we all know that we shouldn't gossip, even though we've all done it. The Bible, in fact, calls that sin as well. Because it puts people down. It spreads misinformation. It causes others to look at people differently. But we just can't help ourselves, can we? We hear this little rumor that may or may not be true that's just too juicy not to repeat, whether that's in person or on social media somewhere. Why do we do that? Because we're enslaved to sin. The good news in Jesus is that his death has freed us from that power. You are not your own, 1 Corinthians 6 declares. You were bought at a price. You were bought at a price, meaning you belong Christ. You're God's slave. So this change in mindset here is knowing who you are and where your allegiance lies. The message translation of Romans 6 powerfully says, since we're out from under the old tyranny, does that mean we can live any old way we want? Since we're free in the freedom of God, we can do anything that comes to mind? Hardly. You know well enough from your own experience that there are some acts of so-called freedom that destroy freedom. Offer yourselves to sin, for instance, and it's your last free act. But offer yourselves to the way of God and the freedom never quits. All your lives you've let sin tell you what to do, but thank God you've started listening to a new master, one whose commands set you free to live openly in his freedom. So how we live in this world as followers of Jesus is by knowing who you are. And it also, it helps to know our place. You see, Peter opens in verse 11 saying, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, as I mentioned before, I, I, actually depending on the translation, some say aliens, strangers, sojourners, they're all terms that describe people who are not natives or locals. And what Peter's getting at here, I mean, he may, they may literally not be natives or locals, but I doubt it. I bet there's probably quite a few locals in this little congregation. He's saying that they're going to stick out. I grew up in an extremely rural place in northern Iowa, and I know by some standards there are way more isolated and more rural places than what I experienced. But as I've moved around the U.S., I've realized, oh, I have this really kind of unique experience in life. And when it comes to sticking out, um, it's funny because where I'm from, like there was 900 people in the town. So if I've never seen you before, I've never seen you before. You stick out. Everybody knows right away that you are not from here. Uh, uh, even if you look like a local, if you don't walk like us, talk like us, 
I, I was mentioning this to uh, my wife, Corey, once a long time ago, and she started laughing because she grew up in Southern California where millions of people live. And she's like, you know, it works the same way in Southern California. We can spot a tourist a mile away when we're at the beach. And you know, you laugh, you're like, oh yeah, they're the people who aren't tanned. And no, 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 no. It, it, it's the people who are swimming between the months of October and May or what Southern Californians call wintertime, right? It could be 80 degrees out, but no locals swim unless they're wearing a wetsuit in wintertime. So uh, if you're not a native to a particular place, you just stick out. That's what Peter's saying here. Christians should know their place. If you decide to follow Christ, you try to live the good life that God has intended us to live, you're going to stick out. No matter what geographical region you call home, if the people you live and work with see you as being different than they are, that's okay. Because you are different than they are. You're a new creation in Christ. So get over the anxiety. It's going to be there. It always is for all of us. But it's okay. The message simply says, friends, the world is not your home. Don't make yourself cozy in it. The key word is cozy. If your idea of Christianity is just being cozy, of fitting in and being comfortable just like everyone else, then you don't know who you are and you don't know your place. Living the good life of Jesus Christ requires a certain mindset. Scholar Scott McKnight said that Christians... The Christian is the one who is countercultural because he or she is out of step with trends and passions and culture. It is not this way because we're trying to be odd. We're odd because we're trying to be godly. We're trying to be godly. Another way we could say that is that the good life is virtuous. Virtuous. It's not just a bad 70s phrase, okay? Virtuous. We have this reaction to hearing, you know, oh, virtuous, like people are hypocrites who use that word. You know, it wasn't until like 30 years ago where being virtuous and the pursuit of like noble character was a bad thing. I mean, from way before Christ until like, you know, 1970, that was considered like the ultimate pursuit of having godly character. And yet, over the last few years, it's gotten a really, really bad name. Well, following Christ in a hostile world starts with living a good life. And a good life is a virtuous life, and it still matters to God. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. That word, wage war literally means to enlist a soldier. And what Peter is saying here is about all these desires that the Holy Spirit makes known to us, like that's not a good thing, whether it's as small as repeating gossip to something huge. He's saying, avoid it, run from it, get away from it because it's waging war. Don't enlist an army against your own soul. That's the picture and how powerful this is. 
you know, our, this, the temptations that we experience usually fall into one of three categories. They're the appetites, wanting more. They're ambitions that we might have or that need for power and control. They're the approval that we seek from others. And so often, the sins that we, the temptations that we experience have one of those three flavors to it. And when we become aware of it, we run from it, we get away, it's good for our soul. It's good for our soul. And when we don't run from it and the Holy Spirit makes us aware of it, we say, God help me. Forgive me, lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me in a new way. You know, a major step in leading a virtuous life as Christians is learning to abstain. But it's also learning to say yes. Uh, it's not just the don'ts, it's also living a good life full of good deeds. That's what Peter tells us to do. And that simply means to be a blessing to our neighbors and our neighborhood. Wouldn't it be refreshing for people in our town to know Christians as a group of people who instead of being against everything, were instead known as a blessing? That people looked to us and said, ah, man, what an addition to our community that family is. Those Christians, what, a, what good things they do. Look at the positive difference they make. These churches, they add to our community. Learning to live the good life, learning to live as a Christian in a non-Christian world requires a certain mindset. It requires understanding that we may feel at odds with the world. It means trying to live a virtuous life. And this all has impact. When we stick out because we know who we are and we know our place, when we try to live godly lives, when we're people of compassion, grace, truth, love, justice, when we're blessings to our communities, people notice. And they'll speak out on our behalf. As this passage says, someday they may even glorify God because of it. And that's our prayer. That's what, that's what we want. That's why we do it. That's heaven breaking. That's the kingdom coming, heaven breaking into earth, these God moments that we experience and begin to share with others. God utilizes that in the lives of the people and the communities and the neighborhoods around us. So let's start living the good life. Amen? Please join me in prayer. Lord, we come before you this morning, and that's what everybody wants, right? The good life. We want our best life now. And left to our own devices, we're not really sure how to find it or get it. And so we just try. We make mistakes. Some of us discover your path much sooner than others. But you've shown us the new life that we can experience in you. Help us to choose that good life. And as you begin to change us from the inside out, Lord, you make us aware of the ways in which you're working around us. You make us aware of the allegiance the enslavements to sin that we have in our own life. Help us to abstain. But more importantly, Lord, help us just to listen and to follow you. 
Lead us in the way everlasting, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.